This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blah! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. This is Things Police See, first-hand accounts, with your host, Steve Gold. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast that interviews active and retired police officers about their most intense, bizarre, and sometimes humorous moments on the job. I'm Steve Gould, and with me as always is Ken Roybal. Hello, Ken. Hello, hello. How are you, sir? Ah, very good. Just started working out, you know, getting my workout in, and uh, not today, but uh, I'm feeling pretty good. You work out, get the blood flowing, and uh, I feel pretty good today. To say you sound pretty ripped today. I, you know what, if I... (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's feeling good, man. Excellent. Today we have um we have actually this is this is going to be a great one cuz she is she when she left LAPD, she was a D3, which is a supervising detective. Uh she worked homicide, mm. a bunch of other assignments. She was there from 1985 to 2004. Her name is Lindy Gligorjevic, and we will mm. get clarification on the last name cuz it's a little difficult. Yeah, and uh it looks like, uh, according to all the interweb sites, uh, she moved over to a DA's office, too. So she's still, uh, I think she's still at it there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're dealing with a heavy hitter here. She's like a chief investigator for the DA. So um, I'm, I'm imagining she has some pretty incredible stories working LAPD that long. Just a suggestion, um, you and I really aren't worthy compared to her resume. Maybe we should just let her just talk. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'll edit most of our comments out <laughs> in post. It's pretty good, man. She's got TV shows uh, based on her book, man. I'm ready. Yeah, she's got two books: uh, "Hold Fast" and "Bell Lap" 2016, based on um, a couple of LAPD homicide detectives um, fiction. So it's uh, they get rated really highly. So yeah, I'm excited. Let me um, let me just dial her in. Yeah, seamlessly. <laughs> Hello. Lindy, welcome to Things Police See. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, I'm Steve, and you're on also with Ken. Hi, Steve and Ken. Hi, how are you, Lindy? I am good. We were just reviewing your resume here. Um, Very impressive. Um, 1985-2004 LAPD, from P3 lead officer to D3 supervising detective. Um, Very cool. And you you have some books we need to talk about. And most importantly, it seems like you have some pretty crazy stories. <laughs> I have a few. There's too much to. There's too much about Lindy on the internet. I can't possibly have. I, this is like a, a college course that would take at least six months to uh, <laughs> to get to know Lindy. This is good stuff, man. Oh, that's funny. Thank you. Well, I think thank you. <laughs> Love to have an overqualified guest. It's the best. Yeah. So, Lindy, you were you started in 1985. You went to police academy for LAPD. And you came up through patrol, so um, P1, P2, P3, then P, then a lead officer is um, P3 plus one, they call it sometimes, right? Yeah, that's a senior lead officer or a P3 plus one, and that was in 77th Division. What did they do exactly? Because I've heard, this, um, heard, the, heard of that position several times when I worked at Backgrounds. Could you just explain what they do? 
Oh, it's an awesome job. Uh, the senior lead officer is responsible for a car. So on the LAPD, it's um, reporting districts, and you have 24 hours a day, you have patrol officers assigned to a reporting district. The senior lead officer is the community liaison with that district. So you're working patrol, but you're also going to block club meetings. You're talking with the community to find out what their concerns are. And then you're able to um, put some more attention to quality of life issues. I mean, literally quality of life issues. I remember when I first started in 77th Division, which is in South Central Los Angeles, uh, the first the first thing well, my partner handed me was um, boxes of tinfoil. I said, "What am I? What am I doing with tinfoil?" He says, "You got to wrap the uh, Christmas. You have to wrap the um, palm trees on this block for all the old ladies. It's um, a Christmas tradition." Really? Mm. And, and yeah. So I had I got a stapler and I went out and wrapped palm trees and tied red ribbon around them. And it had been a tradition on this street for I don't know 50, 60 years. I don't know if they're still doing it, but but that that's kind of the senior lead officer's role is solving real problems and small problems. That's sweet. Mm-hmm. I love that story. That's really cool. I know we Ken and I worked with a um, you guys call them slows, right? S L O. Yeah. Um, yeah. we worked with a woman who was uh, slow in. I think Hollywood, but she, um, she loved it. That was like her favorite position. Oh yeah. It was a fun position. And this was right after the riots. And so that was a community that was not particularly trusting of the police department. And there was a lot of healing that had to happen. So it, it was a fantastic learning experience and one of the best times in my career. That's awesome. So when, when you go from, uh, Another question for you, um, for myself and the audience, uh, Ken probably already knows this, but when you go from a P3 or when you get into detectives, um, just from conversations I've had in the past, it's intriguing to me because it's, I mean, there's got to be a testing process. They obviously might have their eye on you or they know, they have an idea you might oh. be good at it. Like This is this is a, I'm going to stop you right there because it sounds like you think that um, I had a plan. I had tested for sergeant, and I wanted to be a sergeant. I loved patrol. I wanted to be a sergeant. So the uh, written test came out about the same time, the sergeant's sergeant's test and the detective test. I did not want to be a detective. But I had a girlfriend who was pregnant, and she needed a ride because she kept throwing up. And so I said, oh, I'll take that stupid detective test because she needed a ride. And so uh, this is how Lindy managed her career. We drove down to Hollywood, uh, Fairfax High, to take the test. And I passed it. I don't know how I passed it because I didn't study for it. I only (laughs) studied for sergeant. And then I wasn't even going to take the oral interview because I did not want to be a detective at all. And my sergeant told me, um, he told me, get down there and take this damn test or you will not get one day off you want next DP. (laughs) Okay. So I went down and I and uh, I took the test. I felt terrible because it seemed like these lieutenants that were on the oral board were really looking for people that were dedicated to being a detective. I did not want to be a detective. I wanted That's to funny. be a sergeant. And um, I made it. I did well. Weirdly, I did well and ended up in Foothill Division as a detective one. And it took me probably, I want to say, by the end of the week, I was madly in love with the whole role of being a detective, madly in love with it. But I didn't think I was going to like it going in, and I loved every minute of it. I loved being a detective. What year were you in uh, Foothill? Uh, 
94, I want to say 94 to to 99, I think. Was was, uh, Frank Bishop or David Scoto there? Yes, both. Uh, Frank Bishop was my my boss when I was uh, in Homicide. And uh, Dave was in Homicide before I got there. Yeah, both of them worked at Backgrounds uh, with us. I trained Dave. Oh, I knew Dave from the 80s from Wilshire Patrol. But Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, I knew Frank was a seasoned detective when I got to Wilshire Patrol, I think, in 82, something like that. And he was already gregarious and uh, oh. and making a name for himself back then. But, uh, yeah, oh, she yeah. Knows bo- we know both of them. Nothing like working for an, an Irishman. He was, <laughs> he was a great, great boss. And Frank he hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I know he hasn't changed. <laughs> we need to have a united effort to get Frank to agree to come on at some point. Uh, oh, oh, I will, I will do my part on that. I will, I will pester him. Good. Lindy, <laughs> when you, I heard some of, I heard talk of polygraphs when you become a detective. Do you actually, is that just for robbery homicide or do you get, have to take a polygraph? No, I, well, that may have changed, but there were only polygraphs for particular positions on, on the LAPD. And I never had a position where you needed to take a polygraph. That's so weird to me. They do that. Like, I can't get over it. Like you're already a cop. You made it. You're sworn in. And then they have this specialty position that they give you a polygraph yeah. for. And then what if you like bomb the polygraph? I Does actually knew your a employment? guy that, that I, I knew a guy that bombed a polygraph. He was trying to get into narcotics. And um, it came back deceptive on something weird like transporting uh, dope for sales or something. And he was devastated because he didn't do that. Yeah. And wanted he went down to IA to open an investigation on himself so that he could clear his name. And they told him, there's no such thing. We don't do that. <laughs> uh, so, no, it is peculiar. It's, I, I, but I have never worked in a position where I needed to take a poly. Okay. I've Sorry, talked to I had people. to ask that. I've talked to people about that. Anybody that's been in patrol or anything like that, the polygraph is just a psych thing. You know, it's just, it's yeah. however you respond to it. So I don't see any cop can pass a polygraph. I don't, I don't know. I, I used polygraphs as a detective and for me, they, all they have been is a tool to assist with an interrogation. Right. I don't, I don't put a ton of stock in them one way or another, whether they're, you know, I, I don't put a ton of stock in them except for the fact that they really do aid in an interrogation. Yeah. I, I, uh, we've, uh, gone through this, uh, with backgrounds, uh, when they, um, added polys back to the uh, process, which is fine. I mean, but there's a lot of people that fail the poly that, uh, you know, we try and get the information out and it's good. Uh, it's a good investigative tool. And if yeah. you're a good investigator, you'll get a confession out of somebody. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Lindy, can you tell us about the first hot call you responded to? Well, I was thinking about the first hot call I responded to. I I started my patrol in Hollywood. And so you know how this is. When you're a brand new police officer, I mean, just just getting out of roll call feels like a hot call. But I I would have to say the first really um, eye-opening call was, uh, this was again back in the 80s, so the Palladium, we used to have these punk rock concerts, and then they would turn into melees, just riotous melees. And so the first time I was ever standing in a skirmish line, I it was a, it was amazing because these people were lobbing 
bottles at us and rocks and we we couldn't move we couldn't move until we got the word to move in and the discipline that it took and i i i'm again i'm a dummy i'm a kid i'm wearing short sleeves which i was literally the only one wearing short sleeves why because everyone knew this was going to happen that night and they're wearing long sleeves i'm wearing short sleeves and i'm getting shards of glass in my forearms Mm. as i'm standing there this is something else and so finally, when we get the word that we can move out and, and start dispersing this crowd, um, this guy comes at me and I hit him with a power stroke with my baton. And, you know, in the academy, you, you do nothing but hit a tire with a baton for hours and days and days and days. And you get used to how that baton bounces back on your forearm. And when you hit a human, it feels different. And for the split second, as I'm, as I, my, my baton hits this guy, I'm thinking, that's not what I thought this was going to feel like. Yeah. And it's kind of surreal because you're in the moment, but yet you're, you're having this, you know, third party conversation in your head. Well, that's different because <laughs> it, the, the body absorbs that, um, that blow in a different way than a, than a, a, um, a tire does. Sure. So anyway, we, uh, we chased down this other guy that's busting out windows of cars into a bar and, Oh, that was just something trying to drag this guy out of this bar and people on top of us. And we get him out and we get him booked. And I go in to, uh, to bring the uh, arrest report to the watch commander. And the watch commander says, where's your um, name tag? <laughs> Again, hmm. very naive. I'm from Minnesota. I, I, I say, well, sir, I took it off for the riot. <laughs> <laughs> he says, it fell off. Go talk to your training officer and come back and tell me what happened to your name tag. (laughs) Okay, this is even more peculiar things. I go tell my training officer. I thought he was going to hit me. You moron. (laughs) Tell him it was going to fall off. So you took it off for safekeeping. All right. I hustle back in and tell him that. Uh, It was just, it's it's funny because you're only naive. You're only uh, young once, right? Mm Mm-hmm. How strict that is. That's very paramilitary. LAPD in the 80s was very paramilitary. I I think that uh, law enforcement in general is evolving into something else. But in the 80s, it really was. And all of my training officers were Vietnam veterans. I, all of them were that age. And so uh, there weren't a lot of women. And the men that I worked with were, were real tough guys. So... I think that I, I think I, I couldn't have done better in terms of learning than being in a Hollywood division in the eighties. I'm picturing yeah, these, you the end of that shift, just like shirt untucked, uh, a mess just after running around and wrestling with people. And <laughs> yeah. It must've been yeah. like a crazy. Hollywood was, Hollywood was fun. It was really fun. I, you either love Hollywood or you can't wait to get out of there. And I loved it. It was just such a crazy place. What did you think after your first shift? Did you think like, this is for me? Or did you think like, holy crap? I thought, well, the first day of the academy, I thought this is going to be for me. I really dig getting yelled at. I love doing hard things and accomplishing things. And then when I got to Hollywood, part of it, before you really start developing your confidence, you just think, can I do this? And then when I could do it, what I really truly liked is I liked the variety that you could start the day off 
with a car chase and end it with um, um, a mom who's lost her, her, her kid. It's it, the variety of things that could happen in one shift. Um, there's nothing like it in the world. Nothing like it in the world. It's hard work, but it's rewarding work. And the camaraderie, which I don't know, you know, I hate to sound, again, old, but uh, I don't know now with the shifts the way they are. Um, I hear a lot of talk about how it's not as, <clears throat> the officers are not as close as they were. They're working 12-hour shifts now, so you don't have that same cohesiveness you used to have on a watch. Mm. But yeah, Going back to what, what uh, Lindy was saying about the 80s, when in the early 80s, uh, the officers, she's correct in that there were a lot of uh, Vietnam vets and uh, just old-school guys that didn't think women should be on the job. Yes, and then, uh, that is for, correct. For any police officer getting into the uh into patrol you had to prove yourself and do all that if you're a male officer for females it was still it it seemed like uh, lindy it seemed like it was uh, was it the late 70s mid 70s when females uh finally got field certified yeah and yeah. then the, so there's these guys i worked with with uh, officers that came on the late fifties and and early sixties and I had to, and it was a pain, it was a pain in the ass to prove to them that I could do the job, but for the women had it doubly hard uh, because they were just, they could go and they could kick somebody's guy's ass all across the street in a fight and they'd still wouldn't, yeah, she'll still, you shouldn't be out here, man. And you know, it was like that for her. So she had it tough. Yeah. Hence not getting the memo about the long sleeves. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the the best you could hope for, which has happened to me throughout my my career, the best you could hope for is you're the best female police officer I've ever worked with. Not the best police officer. You never got the best police officer. You got oh, you're brutal. the best female. Yeah, yeah, it is. But it uh, it is what it is. The other thing too, though, you also had chivalry. Chivalry. The these men were all like my big brothers or my dad. Mm. They really cared about me. Um, uh, when I finally got off probation, you can work a U car, which is just a report writing car, but you get to be alone and it's so exciting. And I would, I would uh, go code six in neighborhoods and I'd see little taillights of black and whites just kind of circling around, just making sure I was okay. They never said anything to me, but they knew where I was. I, I don't know. I, I, I worked with jerks like everyone has. I've worked with female jerks. I've worked with male jerks. But by and large, um, I found that the men I worked with would give me a shot after I proved myself. But I think that's the same for men or women. Sure. Did uh... although, although I do have to tell you guys, how, okay, how, is this a PG uh, podcast no. or an R-rated podcast? Let it rip. Okay, so when I worked Rampart Division, which is another crazy place, but I was a P2 in Rampart, and um, I was a single mom, so I was mostly on day watch. That was the best shift that worked for me. But when I have to get wheeled off of day watch, mid-PM watch worked kind of okay. I could at least get my daughter to to a babysitter and so on. So I'm not on mid-PM watching Rampart because I'm a ghetto gunfighter. I'm on mid-PM because I got wheeled there. They don't have any women on mid-PMs. It's the fastest watch in the city, has the most felony rest in the city. It's like go, go, go. And um, the first few months I'm on that 
watch like nobody talks to me like i have to work with a probationer because no one will work with me it was it was pretty rough and i had turned down a guy on a date and that had that had landed me on the the uh, rampart gazette which is the third stall of the men's bathroom (laughs) and yeah yeah, I had friends, though. They would bring me in there and show me what people were writing about me. But it's the usual shit you write about women, uh, you know, and nothing too creative. So um, this one officer, uh, I might as well just tell you his name because it's a true story. Jimmy Simonici, who's the toughest guy on this watch, comes in one night and he says, um, my name was Olofsson. And he says, hey, Olofsson. I hear you fucking everybody on mid PM watch. How come you haven't fucked me yet? Oh my goodness. And I said, well, because I'm <laughs> fucking everybody in alphabetical order and I'm only to Ariano. <laughs> and when I get to S, I will let you know. Uh, and he started laughing and he walks over and he shakes my hand. And then after that, after that, I had friends. After that, people back me on calls. After that, I had partners. You're so there's a there there is a uh, I mean it's not hazing but there's a degree of all right are you with us or are you not with us and how do you show you're with somebody you know you got to be able to take a horrible joke you know mm-hmm. sure and you, I am I'm good at that did you ever uh, come across a, a D3 her name was uh, Ray Sinkowski Sinkowski that sounds familiar but she Sinkowski. was a she was a little older when she came on the job, but it was funny. I worked with her and she was on, on probation. This is again in the eighties. And it was the funniest thing. I've never forgot this when it comes to the, to that uh, kind of mentality between men and women and women were just like, you could tell the women a joke and nobody would be offended and all this type of thing. And I remember one time we were sitting at uh, detective headquarters waiting for something and we were talking and, um, I, I, the, the conversation turned to something like how, you know, how did you come to be a police officer and all that? And she said, all my life, I wanted to be a policeman. And she <laughs> didn't say a police officer. Yeah. She wanted to be a policeman. Policeman. And that's yeah. how old school it was. Yeah. But, but, ah, oh, God, I remember the days that, uh, that women just were like the guys, you know, just smoking and joking and telling jokes and nobody got offended and, you know, all that type of thing. It was cool. Uh, it's, it's, how can I put this? It's if you have the ability to prove yourself, uh, you don't you don't need a lot of protection. But the I remember a female sergeant um, getting offended on my behalf in roll call one day, and uh, it was a similar thing. The watch commander had moved me off my own car, and I said, "Why am I off my own car?" He says, "You're just lucky you have a job and that you're not home pregnant and barefoot." I said, oh, okay, well, as long as you've explained it, then I understand. (laughs) And so everybody laughed, and we moved on, right? I was moved off the car because I didn't have the seniority. I knew why I was moved off the car. I was a smartass, and he made a joke back. I understood the whole dynamic. But the the female sergeant, uh, she beefed him, and then he was pissed at me. But I'm like, I take her out back, and I'm like, why did you do this to me? Why would you get me in this kind of trouble? And she says, just because you can take a joke doesn't mean every woman can. And you have to think about other women that can't take a joke. I'm like, well, no, I I can't can't be here on behalf of all women in America. Yeah. yeah. It hurts that it's it's part of gelling. You got to feel, you got to be able to feel safe with your coworkers that you can let it rip and people aren't going to get offended and they know you well enough that they know that you're not, 
you know, you're not some, some sexist maniac or something. You know, I, I worked with two women back on the East coast and they were great. They were, they thought it was stupid when we changed from patrolman to patrol officer, you know, they, they just kind of got it like you do, Lindy, you know, they just it takes a special kind of person to be a cop. And, um, if you're, if you're not that kind of person, it, it can be. Well, tough. as you know, you're going to, you're going to leave that station and you're going to go out into a world that's, that is literally designed to kill you. And mm-hmm. so if you can't take a joke, right. There's more important things uh, here. Yeah. Yeah. Lindy, can you describe the strangest or most bizarre call you dealt with? And I'm sure you have a plethora to choose from, but. I do have lots of, I do have lots of um, strange ones, especially in Hollywood, because uh, in the eighties, Hollywood was, was um, just filled with so many strange, strange people and strange things. Mm -hmm. Um, We went on a suicide call up in the hills above Hollywood and um, a very fancy house and a woman had killed herself. And so we were, we had to wait for the coroner. It was clearly a suicide. And my partner could only stand, stand so much of this goofball guy that was this lady's, I guess, her boyfriend. So he says, I'm going to wait down at the bottom of the hill for the coroner. The coroner's never going to be able to find this place. Awesome. I'll just stay here with the weird man. <laughs> yeah, so, you're just thinking uh, ahead. He's like, bye-bye. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Again, uh, my best stories are when I'm a boot and I'm being taken advantage of. So um, <laughs> off my partner goes, and I'm with the, I'm with the very weird, I don't know, like a movie producer type of guy. And um, he's crying and telling me how much he loves his girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, hold on a second. I got to show you something. I, I got to show you something. I got to give you something. And he takes off. I'm thinking, oh, this is awesome. He's going to come back with a knife or a gun. And I'm alone. And where's my partner? Uh, And he comes back. And he's got this velvet bag that looks like a a Seagram's gin bag. And uh, there's this beautiful glass table we're sitting at. And he dumps out on this table a bag full of sapphires. And all the sapphires go bouncing all over this table. The most gorgeous stones I've ever seen in my life. And all I can think of is when this guy sobers up, he's going to say, I stole one of his stupid sapphires. <laughs> yeah. And I can't, I have no, there's no body cameras there. I don't have a cell phone with to take pictures. I have no, I don't have a Polaroid. So I'm, I'm getting him to gather up these sapphires and then we line all the sapphires up and make him count all the sapphires. And this is how many sapphires you had. Yes, yes, yes. And put the sapphires back. Go put the sapphires back in your wherever you got the sapphires from. This is this is how I get fired. Is what I'm thinking. I, he is going to accuse me of stealing the sapphires. He didn't. <laughs> he didn't. But he stalked me forever. He kept coming into Hollywood Station, trying to find me. Ugh. Which you know. Yeah, exactly. This is how we meet. We meet over your dead girlfriend's body, and you try to give me sapphires. But that is kind of what um, what a night in Hollywood could be like. Sounds like he uh, had a little crush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, it used to be a big joke in LAPD in the locker room. So there'd be a uh, someone would f- would accidentally leave like a buck on the on the bench, and it would sit there for days and days and Day, days. Uh-huh. Because exactly. they go, that's a plan. IA's planning me. You take that dollar and you're getting fired. You're done. Right. I know. <laughs> I know. 
And I would my tell. Husband, oh, go ahead. My husband is a my husband's a retired LAFD fire captain, and uh, I think their full time job was um, playing jokes on each other. But they would uh, hot glue coins on the sidewalk to see if they could get people to try to pick up coins. That's awesome. Firefighters are just <laughs> they're just fun, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. I met public. him. I met him during the riots. Uh, so oh. we do have a meet cute story. We we always, uh, <laughs> celebrate in April with a toast to Rodney King. <laughs> That's, That's funny. Funny. Oh man, Lindy, can you tell us about uh, one of your most intense moments? Uh, my most intense moments really came when I was a homicide detective. Um, those are the ones that really. Uh, stay with me as intense, um, not just with the dead bodies, but also with, um, doing the notifications to family members and so on. So the most terrifying one, or I don't know if terrifying is the right word, but the most tragic one was a woman named Lisa Kerr, whose boyfriend had, uh, set her on fire while she was still alive in the back seat of her car and it was a small car and I had to get in there with her and the coroner investigator to get her body out. And her body was disintegrating in our hands. Um, cause he had poured accelerant on her. Was this as a detective all, or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Sorry. And all that was left of her was, um, the side of her face that was on her purse and uh, some of her hair. And I, We'll never forget holding a human body and having it fall apart in my hands. That mm. that was that was pretty intense. Wow! Holy cow! So he locked, or somehow uh, he must have he her had, and locked her in there and he lit her had, on fire. He had choked her in her apartment and thought he had killed her, um, and put her in her car, and she was unconscious drove around, um, went to her, she worked at a beauty supply store, went in there and got some uh, acetate and then drove her car off of uh, the freeway on into some, into um, the side of the, free, the freeway, poured acetate on her, lit her on fire in the car and uh, ran. But she had um, my her hope is that she was still unconscious, but she was breathing because she had a soot in her esophagus. Mm. Oh, man. Mm. Yeah. Awful. Yeah, that one was really awful. And that was, I mean, this guy must have been kind of out of his mind if he thought he was going to get away with uh, that. Yeah, he he was a, um, he was, um, a stalker guy and had stalked her and, and when they broke up, he just wouldn't let her go. And she was, um, was she famous or was she just um, like? No. Okay. Just a no. pretty young girl. Hey, Lindy, yeah. for patrol guys, you know, the patrol guys get the call, homicide, whatever. You go and you secure the scene and, and start all that stuff. And then they go off and they go do the Lord's work somewhere else after that. Right. But for investigators, for detectives, I was never in, in uh, detectives, but it seems like you that you take those cases and you just study them and you study the killer and you have to look at those, those, um, those homicide photos and all that. Does that, 
did, do you take anything away from that where it, does it bother you today? Some of these cases? Oh yeah. They, the ones I didn't solve still, still bother me. I still, I am when I'm on the 210 freeway, I think of a woman's body that we found that we, we weren't able to solve her murder. So no, they stay with me. Um, the, uh, the hardest thing is, I think, well, that's all hard, but, uh, the autopsies were difficult to get used to just seeing what happens to a human body. And then that kind of makes you have a commitment to, to a mom, you know, or a dad or a husband or a wife that I'm going to find out who did this to your loved one. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's difficult to uh, to think about because I've seen some of those some of those murder books they call them. Yeah, and there's some awful awful things people do to other people. Yes, yes, they they do, and there is um, there's always that potential of of like losing bits of your own humanity because you're around just so much bad stuff in foothill division when i worked for frank bishop uh this was in the 90s is a lot of gang activity so we averaged about between 30 and 40 homicides a year in one division in the um northeast part of the san fernando valley Mm. and that's not even the fastest division in the city or wasn't the fastest how many homicides would they give um a detective to handle at one time we averaged, uh, whoever I was partnered with, we would average about between 10 and 12 a year. Wow. Yeah. Cause they, obviously they take a lot more time and detail than, uh, any other crime. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're, you're also hopefully going to court. So you, in between solving new things, you're testifying in court on old things. Is, is hand- oh, go ahead, Ken. Okay, I was just going to say, I, I've always wondered about the uh, the on-call detectives uh, uh, where did you have to stay close to home? Can you explain a little bit for the listeners about yes. being on call? Well, being on call, be, again, before there was cell phones. So you had a pager that would, that would go off. Um, and so you had that pager on you all of the time. So if you're on call, you're on call for an entire week. And... Um, and if you work someplace like Foothill Division, you're likely going to get called. So we typically didn't go to the movies or plan big events when I was on call. But to this day, I'm still finding out things about my daughter, volleyball games I missed. And, you know, I, I've missed a lot uh, when, I, when I was a detective because as soon as you go to sleep, your phone's ring or your pager goes off or your home phone goes off and you're gone. You're you're gone for 72 hours sometimes. And the way LAPD works is you have to show up. Usually people don't murder other people like during regular work hours. It's, <laughs> it's in the middle of the night. So and then you have to show up. You have to show up on scene just like fresh, just like first thing in the morning, you know, and you have to look sharp and, and all that. And, uh, oh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's no Columbo looking stuff, but, uh, yeah, I always admired that about the, de- the detectives. Lindy, when you, when you become a detective, um, what did they, did they, I mean, obviously they sent you some kind of training, certain amount of hours, or was it all on the job? 
No, you you go to detective schools, and then uh, in California, there's a great program called the um, ICI, uh, Robert Presley Institute of Criminal Investigations, and it's um, it's the idea behind it was to standardize training throughout the state of California, and so there's a series of um, there's a series of uh, classes you can go to, from burglary to rape to murder that way. And then there's also other specialized training you can go to, obviously interrogation and so on. But I, I don't know how I lucked into this. I got to go to the very, very first ICI homicide training. A uh, woman? They let a woman do that? Yeah, they, I was literally the only one, <laughs> but they let, uh, it was, it was LAPD and LASO. And the funny thing is, is that on the LAPD, it's probably changed, but on the LAPD, we did not seek out training from anyone else. We were the LAPD. We trained other people. You know, it was very incestuous. So all our training came from robbery homicide division, for instance. So you know, it, you, I, I learned something, then I, I train you, and then you train someone else. It, it wasn't. It was very insular. And so when they had their very first homicide class two-week class, uh, I got to go, and the LESO guys are all on one side of the room, and the LAPD guys are all on the other side of the room, and like, we were suspicious of the LESO, like, who are those guys? <laughs> what, what do they do? You know? Where's Tam? So ridiculous, you know, do they solve murders? <laughs> and so the first thing they did is they made us go every other person, so you had to be at a table and sitting in between two people that were not from your department. So that was funny. <laughs> and then uh, it was very eye-opening because um, I had only been trained by robbery homicide guys who only come to talk to you because they've solved serial killers. Yeah, I'll tell you how wonderful they are. <laughs> this was different because uh, some of the instructors taught from a position of making mistakes. And there was a guy who had come in right from a homicide and the instructor was an LSO guy. He says, come up, come up, tell us what's going on. And it was, uh, it had been all over the LA times. It was a guy, I think it was in Downey, I think that had, maybe not Downey, but it was somewhere out in LSO's territory. He had had, he had been having sex with his secretary on a hotel balcony and claimed that she had fallen off the balcony and died when he was having sex with her. Oh, that was in uh, City of Industry, I think. Indus there you go. And so yeah, the, <clears throat> the detective is coming off of that case, and they had had, a, I don't know, JPL, or they had had some, maybe it was Caltech, that they were dumping um, weights off of the balcony to see if the, if a human body would have gone that far. And so it was a very interesting case. We all knew about it. It was on the front page of the Times every day. And this detective got up and started talking about the case. But he started talking about what, where he had screwed up. And, he's, and he's, he's, he's not even thinking. And he's just talking. And he's like, I let that guy back in the room. I let him in. I don't know why I let him in. And, uh, and as he's talking, I find myself taking notes. Because now I'm learning something. Because it's very difficult to learn something from somebody who solves everything. I just got to the scene and I knew the killer right. must have been, you know. You learn from other people's mistakes. And it was really fascinating and it stayed with me. And so when I went on to teach 
homicide for ICI. I only talked from the the mistake angle. I never talked about some great hunch I had. I talked about mistakes I made because that's your gift back to people is Mm -hmm. here, whatever you do, don't do this. That's a great point. That's how you learn. Yeah. And I met a, I met a guy in from LASO and, uh, he and I became like secret friends because you can't ever ask anybody a question because you don't want to appear like you're stupid. So we would call each other and it'd be hysterical because he'd, he'd be like this, Lindy, Lindy, it's Rich. Hey, I thought a lady and she's stuffed in a locker. Uh, what would you do? What if she's, hey, that Rich, her whole body's in a locker? Yeah, her whole body's in a locker. That's funny. <laughs> this That's is, great. It was awesome. It was awesome. That's really hey, cool. Hey, Steve, Steve, you want to know how old school Lindy is? How old school? <clears throat> she's so old school. That you don't hear you don't hear LESO anymore because LESO stands for Los Angeles uh, Sheriff's Office. And one time I was talking to someone back I want to say back in the mid nineties and I said LESO and they looked at me really indignantly and they said L A S T. And I said, oh, Okay, yes, anyway. So the LESO guy was over there and I mean it was like insulting to say LESO, but I I'm you're bringing back memories, Lindy. Saying oh, office is too quaint, like he only has an office. He has a whole department now. Come on. There you go. That's funny. That's uh, Lindy, can you uh, warm the cockles of our heart with the oh, yeah, sure, heartwarming I can. story? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this this story it, it reflects poorly on me, but it's it's it is a heartwarming story. It's the best kind. So when I was when I was working Rampart, um, I was working Thanksgiving. And, uh, Rampart is the part, it's, uh, part of the city of Los Angeles. It's only 12 by 12 square miles. And in the eighties, there were 365,000 people living in that 12 by 12 square foot area. Most were, uh, El Salvadorian, uh, Central American, Korean, and, um, uh, Cuba's, uh, Marielitos, uh, boat folks were there as well. So Rampart was a very violent place and it was a place that did not have roots. It's not like East LA where generations of people have lived in the same house. Rampart was transitory and it was really violent and really difficult to understand the different cultures that, that landed there. And so, uh, you know, as, a, as an officer, you learn the types of horrible crimes. These are stereotypes, but you learn the types of horrible crimes people do to their children. And El Salvadorian men, not all, not all Salvadorian men, but the types of child abuse that we would see at the hands of El Salvadorians was quite brutal, quite, quite brutal. And so we get a um, child abuse call down in Pico Union, very heavily El Salvadorian, and my partner is driving, and my partner says, oh, it's another El Salvador beating his kid. And he's Hispanic, the, my partner. Gotcha. I said, yeah, probably. And so off we go, because this is what we did. We we went to child abuse calls where children were beat sav- savagely by their their parents. So as we're coming up on... Pico Union, um, more information comes out of the radio, but then I see the person, and it is definitely not an El Salvadorian man. It's a six-foot-tall 
250 pound white woman and she's got her baby who's probably about six to eight months old by the ankle and the baby is naked and she's walking down the street swinging the baby Ooh. and the baby's head clips uh the curb oh. of, <laughs> as she's walking so i leap out of the car and I, she's in some kind of dope stupor I do like a football move. I push her shoulder with one hand and I grab the baby with another hand. I got the baby trying to get away from her and she's coming over the top of me trying to get the baby suddenly. My partner runs around the car and gets her handcuffed. The baby's screaming, bleeding and screaming. And so I, um, I, I have a little girl at home. So I, I stick my, um, my knuckle into the baby's mouth and I'm rocking the baby trying to get the baby to stop crying. And, um, this little girl comes out of one of these tenement slums in Pico Union. This place is the most poverty ridden place, uh, in, certainly in Los Angeles and not in America during, at this particular time. This little girl comes out of the house and she says, um, in English to me, she's Hispanic. She says in English, can I help you? And I said, yes, you can help me. I pull out all my wadded up dollar bills out of my pocket. And I said, run down to the liquor store and get me a, uh, like an apple juice with a nipple on it, you know. And she says, okay. And she runs off with my money. And my partner starts laughing. He goes, well, I guess I'm buying lunch. <laughs> and I said, sure, I don't know. She'll come back. He goes, nah, she's not coming back. And she comes running back. And she's got my change in her little hand. And oh. she's got the little bag with the apple juice and the nipple and the whole thing. And then women start coming out of the apartments and they're bringing clothes for the baby and blankets for the baby. And I am feeling like the biggest asshole on the earth because <laughs> this is the truth of the matter is the good people are always inside, no matter what the culture is, no matter what horrible thing you see, the good people are in their homes. Sure. And um, <clears throat> we booked them on the baby the baby obviously went to uh, into uh, <clears throat> the child custody folks came and got the baby, but mom had AIDS, baby had AIDS. Oh. Uh, it was just a sad, it was a sad story, but I went home that Thanksgiving to my own kid and um, it was a real good reminder to me. And it's a cautionary tale of any time you just get shit full of, something, anything, any culture, you just have to remember that the good people are in the houses and you focus on the good people. That's good. That's a great point. Wow. That's, um, man, I can't, she was swinging the baby around and the baby hit the curbing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It was awful. It was awful. This but was supposed to be heartwarming, Lindy. It was, but it was heartwarming. <laughs> it was. <laughs> because the little girl went and, it was and, both. and helped me and all the moms helped me and, and that, and it just, I only had a couple of years on the job at that point, but it was a fantastic wake up call because when you run and go and go and go and go, and all you are seeing is the worst that a particular culture or people have to offer, it can start shaping how you deal with everyone. And, and uh, cops always have to battle that back. Absolutely. And I, and now I would say now for the young officers today, I'm sure it's very similar with working with the homeless is that mm. you just get shit full of it, but you've got to mm. find the humanity in yourself and you've got to find the humanity in the human. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Lindy, yeah. you got a question, Ken? No, I was going to say every once in a while, people surprise you. you every, every contact with a police officer is negative, whether it's a victim and they got um, victimized by criminals or it's a criminal. Everything is a, a negative 
contact. And so, but every once in a while, some people do stuff that surprises you and it just kind of warms your heart. Yes. Yes. And that's what you have to hang on to, to get you through to the next horrible thing that somebody's done to another person. Yeah. Lindy, can you give some advice to new police officers or candidates that are coming on the job? This one is a tough one because everyone it has their police experience in their in their own era, you know. And what I noticed up here in Central California when I go to um, police graduations, people that are my age, you know, chiefs of police and so on that that tend to give the um, get asked to give the uh, speeches they all talk about how they wouldn't want this job today and how hard it is and how everybody is maligning cops and how it's a thankless job and blah, 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 blah. And I think, oh my God, if I'm 21 years old and I'm set out to do this career and you're telling me how awful it is, I, that this is my graduation day. Mm-hmm. So um, I spoke up about that at an advisory board meeting and then that landed me behind the podium myself. But it is so important that um, young people today learn from the people that are senior to them, of course, but that they they have the opportunity to be police officers in this era, which is different and much more challenging, I think, in many ways. People are filming them all of the time. But these are also kids that are used to living on social media. They're used to being filmed. They've been filmed since mm-hmm. birth. People are constantly posting pictures of them on Instagram as they grow up. So it's mm. a different era. It's not a 58-year-old going out there on patrol. It's a 21-year-old. So I don't like to be negative about, about what they're facing because they're going to be equipped to face it. But I always um, remind people about having a reverence for the law, even though our laws change and they don't benefit California the way it is now. Um, but we have to have a reverence for the law. We have to behave with integrity and we have to be courageous. And if you can be courageous, you can get the other two down pretty well. Courageous is a great thing to say because it's um, courage doesn't happen like in the absence of fear. It's like overcoming your fears. So, it overcomes fear. Yeah, you're going to be afraid sometimes, but you have to be uh, courageous. That's, I like that. That's great. Well, um, that's, what, that's what people are counting on. Lindy, do you have, um, as we were talking, I posted on our Facebook page um, that you were coming on, and we have a couple questions that came in for you. Do you mind answering them? <laughs> Hell no. Jimmy, if it's Jimmy Simonici, just tell him I'm it's sorry. It's this guy, Jimmy Simonici, <laughs> says, you are a dick. <laughs> um, no, th- these are just uh, fans. Yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so David Broomfield asked, um, well, he asked uh, about training to be a homicide detective. We kind of talked about that. It's one of his goals to be, uh, eventually become a detective. And he wants to know, um, does, does homicide detectives specifically, in your opinion, does it take a special kind of person even above and beyond being a police officer? Well, I think so. Um, the homicide detectives that I've worked with, it's interesting. I have, they, they, they kind of the trend that, that I saw in the homicide units is they are gamblers. And they're artists, which may sound really funny, but Mm. I've worked with a lot of gamblers and I've worked with a lot of people who have artistic ability. So I, I think about that, like what about those two things attracts those types of men and women to homicide? 
and uh, the gambling, you are going to take a lot of risks interrogating people and trying to solve things. That is risk-taking. That is a risk-reward component. The um, artistic part of it is you need to be creative. And this one's always tough for me because it, taken out of context can sound bad. But what I liked about being a homicide detective is I could create my case. How, it, how I decide to solve this murder is up to me. And it's a creative process. How I am going to, to go at this problem, I have a lot of leeway to figure out, am I going directly at it? Am I, how, am I going to figure, how am I going to do it? So that's been my experience. Um, the, the, my, in my current job, I will tell you that um, I love homicide detectives because they will not quit. And so even though now I'm responsible for people who do a lot of fraud investigations, which are very, very difficult to do, I like to put my homicide guys in those positions because I know they won't quit. Cool. So, so those would be the, the three things that I would say uh, are indicative that are really different than um, patrol officers. Okay. And Don't clear, quit. clearly you liked both of them. Both Oh, gambling? Uh, no, I mean patrol and... Uh, sorry, you are about to say something really great there, and then I talked, and then I was like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. You finish, I go. I love patrol. I love patrol. I love patrol because I love a uniform. I love the fact that you know why I'm there, and there's no... there's. I love it. I loved it. What I enjoyed about being a detective is this is the trickery stuff. This is the manipulative stuff. This is the how am I going to get you to trust me and open up and tell me things stuff that it's not, it's not up front. What you're doing is, is a little sneakier and it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right, Lindy, we have one from Joseph Harper and he wants to know what's in your opinion, what would be harder to solve a celebrity murder or a transient murder? <laughs> that is an outstanding question. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So if you are working the LAPD, you won't have that problem because RHD is going to come and scoop it up out of your hands if it's a celebrity. And then you will get nothing but media coverage and so on. So all your moves are, are you know, documented on, on, on television. And ro- that's robbery homicide division. They're kind of like yep. elite investigators, would the you say? Elite, they are the elite detectives. They're the metro of detectives. They are the metro and SWAT of detectives. You didn't make so, eye contact with them, did you, Lindy? I tried not to. <laughs> Don't do it. Um, but they, um, so no, I've never, I've solved high profile murders, but not celebrity murders, but I would say that would be very difficult to solve just for the pressure of everybody being interested in it. Transient would be difficult because of the nature of transients, but that one's awesome because you can get people to talk to you that are living in a, in a, you know, a wash. They, they will talk to you. So I would pick transient over celebrity. Very cool. The transient <laughs> is now you're saying <laughs> transient is harder. Oh no. I would rather solve a transient murder than a celebrity <laughs> murder. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, you talk to other homeless people, you could, you know, buy them a hot dog yeah. and start flapping their gums. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you'll never find them for court. That would be problematic. <laughs> yeah. What's your? Where can we send the subpoena? But yeah. most of most of the detectives in this country are toiling with no media attention because um, 
the media, sadly, considers there's a hierarchy of people and some people are considered throwaway people. So prostitutes and drug addicts and gang members and um, these are these are the these are not the murders people follow. They follow the Lacey Peterson murder. They right. follow yeah. that, even though there were two African American women that were dumped in that same bay. They follow the um, the they follow who they who they want to follow, and it's not it's not what most of us are doing for a living. Understood. So, Lindy, I want to hear about um, your books, and and you have some involvement in TV shows. Yeah, so I have. I she's gone Hollywood, like, everybody. No, yeah, <laughs> gone and came back. I, um, as a reader, I really enjoy. Mm, I enjoy Michael Connelly a lot. I like serial books. I like to stay with a character for years and years and years, and books and books and books. So, um, when I set out to write my own novels. I wanted a series because I like series, but I wanted to do something different. Um, I wanted to do it from a female detective's point of view. And then I wanted to do it from a male detective's point of view. So the, the female detective, uh, she's single, makes uh, bad mistakes in her, her love life. But that's her story. And then the every other book is from the female or the male perspective, her partner. I find it interesting, the before story, because if you pick out any detective book, he is always divorced, he is always an alcoholic, and he always has, uh, like, a hooker with a heart of gold is his new girlfriend. Well, what happened to that guy before that? So my homicide detective is married with two kids, and I write about the toll working murders takes on a normal little family. Because oh, that to me is interesting as opposed to the guy who's already divorced. You notice that. Think about every time you pick up a book, that detective, he is already divorced. He's already an alcoholic. I thought it would be more interesting to, to talk about how did that begin. So I picked a younger man, gave him a wife and children, and put him in situations that are, are tough. That's and, of course, they solve murders um, along the way. So those are, that's, that's my books. Did they come out the same year, 2016? Uh, yeah. So the first book is Hold Fast. Yes. And And the second one is Bell Lap. Okay. Then Bell Lap. So they came out kind of like within six months of each other. Yeah. That's, that's pretty impressive. You wrote two books at, uh, in the same year. Oh, I wrote. Yeah, I can write. I, I in between my, my the LAPD and my job now, I had had three years off and I wrote. I it's all I did is write, wow. and so um, yeah. And then I, I'm not. I, I have a tough time with these television shows where murder is entertainment, but I felt <laughs> that any opportunity I had to help the books, I would take, and so. I said yes to um, a Discovery ID show called The Killer Closer, which just the title is just makes me cringe. But um, and, that, and that profiled some of the murders that I had worked. And the thing that I will tell you, as mortifying as it is to be sitting in front of a camera and talking about uh, yourself, 
the thing that was really cool is that this made it all worth it was one of the moms of one of my murder victims said, and I don't remember this, but she said that I had promised her I would solve her son's murder, which seems really foolish on my part, but apparently I promised her I would solve her son's murder. And she said, uh, she has said a prayer for me every night for 17 years. Oh, that's sweet. And I have never, I'm, I never, I've never seen her in 17 years. And to think that, to think that I made an impact on somebody, I did solve it by the way, but to think that I, that anybody would have the, the desire or the grace to say a prayer for me, just, it humbles me beyond, beyond what I can even describe. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, that made, that made doing Hollywood uh, stuff uh, worth it. It really did. How many episodes of uh, The Killer Closer are there? There's five, I think. Is it still in production? Yeah, it's funny because it <laughs> it's made its way around the globe. And I can tell because on Facebook, I will get friend requests from Romania or something. And mm. so I can tell where it is. And currently now it's in South America based on the feedback on my Facebook page. But when it made its way to Yugoslavia or Serbia, my last name is Serbian. And so I was quite the hit in Serbia, which is pretty funny. That's, I bet. Can, can, yeah, you're like the David Hasselhoff no of Serbia. <laughs> can, can, you, um, can you tell us how to say your name? Because I, I, I entered you and I said, let me tell you how I said it. Then you can critique me. I said Gligorjevic. Okay. That's, that's good. That's close. It's Gligorjevic. The R.I. can, like you said. That's not close. <laughs> She's being kind. <laughs> I tell I tell people it means true love in Serbian because you have to love a guy to take on this name and yeah. spell it all day long. So, <laughs> mm, yeah, that's I'm sure you spell that phonetically constantly on the phone. Hey, Lindy, I do. Uh, LEPD is famous for for giving nicknames to their cops that they cannot pronounce their last names did you have a nickname did they give you a nickname yeah it was like uh g my stepson is a pasadena um police sergeant and he has the same thing it's mike mike g it's lindy g it's oh there like, you go he just that's as far as anyone gets is g and in the academy i'm sure they had a field day with with your last because the, the names of the candidate the, the the recruits are on the backs of the uh uh the sweatshirts was so. not married to him then. Oh, so that, that would, I don't think it would have been a fit on a t-shirt. Oh, <laughs> I agree which would have fit. And they the thing have, is, yeah. that's funny is when we were going to get married, he did not want to wear a wedding ring. Cause you know, being a fireman, your finger could get pulled off at any moment. If you have a wedding ring on, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and sure. I did not want to take his last name because my last name's Olofsson. Are you Scandinavian? Yes, I am. Like there's, it's easy. And you're known by your last name on a police department. So we go into this negotiation about this. And he really wants me to have his last name. He's like, if something happens to you, I want the fireman to know you're my wife. <laughs> like, I'm going to get an extra defibrillator pad because I'm your wife. What if they don't like you? <laughs> and so uh, yeah, I really wanted him wearing a ring. So I said, okay, you wear a ring. I'll take Gligorievich. I have been spelling this name now for 20 six years i really think i really think i got the short end of the stick on this one (laughs) but he still has his ring on 
It looks like uh, Lindy is a chief of uh, investigations. Uh, you're still doing that, huh? Yes, I am the chief investigator for the Tulare County District Attorney's Office. Yeah, so you've got some, you know, I'm curious about that. I've always wondered, you know, there's homicide detectives on the police departments who investigate the crimes, and then uh, the district attorney also has investigators. Can you tell us the, the difference between the two? Yeah, that's a tough one because in 58 counties in California, it's different. And they're all 58 do things differently. In, in L.A. County, it's I never saw a DA investigator. They weren't involved in homicide investigations, not for the LAPD. But uh, here, I'm in rural central California, and um, what tends to happen is the uh, responding agency gets a case through the preliminary hearing stage, and then preparing it for a jury trial, it comes to my investigators to to uh, shore up the case before it goes to a jury trial. But we don't actually respond to homicides in the field, but we do do a lot of work on them uh, after, afterwards. And I've got a cold case unit that oh, very cool. is responsible for solving cold cases in my county. So is there continuity be- from the time the, the homicide detectives, do they let go of the case and then you guys pick it up? Some do, not all, but some do because um, these are smaller departments. They have less resources. And so uh, we are in more support of them than in other jurisdictions. Yeah, back where I, where I was a cop, there's, um, there's actually a law in Massachusetts. There's only three departments that can investigate homicides because of how small there's so many small towns in Massachusetts. Every chief kind of has his own little fiefdom. Like I'm from Cape Cod and there was 15 towns, 15 different police departments. So 15 different jurisdictions on Cape Cod. So the towns were like, interesting. Yeah. There's like, we can't, we can't give the, we can't give, we have a 15 man department. We're going to put one or two guys on a murder. If it happens for, for how long we can't do it because we can't cover our shifts. So um, I think it's Worcester Springfield and Boston and the state police, they can do homicides. Nobody else can. Oh, hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, it, you take for granted, uh, especially when you work LAPD, you, you take for granted how things are. Things are different just going over the grapevine in California. It's everybody's in their own snow globe, you know. <laughs> you work in Tulare, you said, County? Yeah, Tulare. Okay, yeah, I do. Um, I'm, I'm a, a fraud investigator for insurance, so I, I spent some time up there. Um, Oh, okay. I've, I've found, like you said, it's different everywhere. I've found um, that county to be like a lot more cooperative, like with me, you know, when I want reports or yeah. I want to talk to an officer or they're just, That's good to hear. yeah, they're just more here. It's like, you know, it's, it's busy as hell, of course. And it's, I'm sure it's busy up there too, but um, here it's like LAPD, they won't give you a report. It has to be, no, they won't. it has <laughs> they to won't be mind. in writing through the mail only. Yes. Um, right. even for and like have a, a note from God, even for like right. a, a motor vehicle death or something there, you know, you're, you're doing this investigation and nope. So you never get it. It's four or five months after your investigation's over. The LAPD report comes in, um, the sheriff's hit or miss, but it's like, I think it's like 30 or $40 for the report. Um, oh, wow. but up there, in, um, to you say, you pronounce it to Larry, to Larry, to Larry. Yeah. Up there. It's like two thirds of the time they give me the report for free and they're more than happy to, you know, give me who the officer or detective was and um, just, I like it. I like it up there. 
It's um, I I tell people all, all the time. It is like California was 30 years ago here. It's um, the people largely support law enforcement. Um, they're friendly. It's 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 a different environment than in the Bay Area or in Southern California. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and it's a, and it's the birthplace of um, isn't it Merle Haggard? Uh, that is in Kern County. That's just south of. Oh. Yeah, in Bakersfield. <laughs> I was trying to sound cool and knowledgeable. And I, <laughs> I've unmasked myself as not being. <laughs> Kern County. Okay. Kern County's Very Bakersfield good. then. Yes. Okay. Very cool. Do you, do you have any idea when, uh, when uh, Lindy will finally say it's been a good career? Well, I, I do play the lottery, so. <laughs> It could be, it could be this week. Uh, but no, I, I've, I've got to do a few more years. Cause you've done 19 at LAPD and how many have you done yeah. for the County? 12. And so, um, and so the 19 should tell you something. I pulled my pension and mm. that, uh, that is a cautionary tale of what not to do young police officers. So, um, uh, and then we moved to Nevada I wasn't going to be in law enforcement anymore. I was going to write books, blah, 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 blah. The economy crashed and I am qualified to, you know, solve homicides and answer phones. So I came back to work as a DA investigator to kind of pull us out of the financial quagmire I had gotten us into. So I'll have to work a little bit longer than I'd like to. That's good though. You're enjoying yourself. I, for some reason, Steve, I don't see Lindy needing a, uh, a monster energy drink. I think she's got all the energy <laughs> she needs every day. She's good to go. Yeah. This is a, this is a kick. I mean, we could talk to Lindy for probably four or five hours. She's got more stuff than, uh, than most people probably have. This is great. Well, I appreciate your interest. It, it's been fun talking to you guys. Yeah. Lindy, thank you so much for coming on the show. And, um, yeah, if you're if you're open to it, maybe down the road we could we could have you back tell some more stories. Oh yeah, absolutely. I really do like the idea of questions because it's it's funny because we think we know what people want to hear, but I love answering people's questions, especially young officers that are uh, that are trying to get get situated in their careers. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do our uh, outro here, but just hang on the line until uh, it's over, if you don't mind. Yes, sir. We'll do. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to support the show, go over to thingspolicey.com. When you get on the website, there's a few different ways you can show some support. You can donate directly. You can do a one-time donation or a monthly donation. Um, Even a buck um, helps us uh, keep the lights on over here, pays our expenses for the month, is greatly appreciated. You can also just use our Amazon affiliate link. If you just want to buy something on Amazon like you normally do, just do it through our link and um, we'll get a little kickback for that. So you can go to the website and do that. Or uh, in the show notes, I'll put a link. You can just click right through that link. And the third way is you can buy some uh, you can buy some merch. So we have um, coffee mugs. We have t-shirts, men's and women's. And we also have hoodie sweatshirts now. So uh, go over to thingspolicey.com and check it out. You can also just um, listen to the podcast there. Or you can apply to be a guest. Just scroll down to and click on be a guest. And what you want to do is just give us a brief uh, synopsis of your, of your service, how many years you uh, were on the job and uh, just a very brief idea of the stories you'd like to share. And I will get right back to you. So thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time.